Okay, happy Sabbath. Good to be here with you guys this morning, and uh, always grateful for the opportunity to share the Bible with you guys. It's really a privilege for me to be able to do this, and I am very excited about today's message. So before we get into that, let's have a word of prayer. So let's bow your heads if you would. Dear Father, we thank you for this Sabbath day and the opportunity to come here together. I just pray that you be with us now as we open your word, that uh, we would be guided by your spirit in this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so today's topic is Dare to Be a Daniel. It's a famous old song that we've probably heard growing up. And Daniel really is an incredible story of someone who is living in less than ideal times. He is someone who has every right to say, you know what, things don't seem to be going God's way. I'm just going to sort of give up on this faith journey faith idea the concept that god is involved in our world just doesn't seem to be real i mean daniel if he had an, if anyone had an excuse daniel did and uh today's study comes from a, a lot of uh really been standing on the shoulders of giants so one book we've been looking at is uh, in the sabbath school over there is william shea's bible amplifier daniel one through seven so that's been one really good resource Another one is this uh, guy from Russia who's actually now in the U.S. and he's retired in Florida, so hopefully we can get him to come one day. But Strafko Stefanovich, isn't that a great name? Strafko Stefanovich. Anyway, he, he does an amazing job of the Book of Daniel, a commentary. So this really is, they're both are both really amazing. They have different kind of focuses, but I've really benefited from studying those books and it's really helped me in preparing for today so i am dependent on them so this uh, picture here i think is really helpful because it gives us an idea that daniel is like this little ribbon of white amidst a dark situation okay so daniel one is really an overview of the whole book of daniel okay so daniel one sets the tone it's like a synopsis of a little summary of what the whole book is going to be about it sets the tone with the different themes. So number one, God is in control, okay? Number two, wisdom comes from God. Number three, God will bring about a reversal. He's going to change what seems to be a hopeless situation and turn it into something that is completely not only better, but even like more than we could imagine, okay? And then he's also, God is a God of judgment. So he's not going to let things slip by and just sort of ignore things that have happened that are wrong, okay? He's going to do something about it. So those are the big themes of Daniel, and they all come up in Daniel chapter 1, okay? Another thing is Daniel alludes to all the other chapters of the book. Daniel 1 does. So in Daniel 1, you're going to see little hints, little things that connect to the rest of the book. So as you're reading through, think about that. And then lastly, we're going to go through the structure here. So this study is going to be on Daniel chapter 1, as you've probably been hearing, and it's divided into four sections. So the first section is the defeat, then it's the training, then the resistance, and finally the triumph. So it's a, it's a hopeful chapter. It ends well, starts out seemingly hopelessly, but it ends a really positive note. All right, so we've talked about this a prior time when I was able to 
share some stuff with you guys about Daniel too. But Daniel grew up in the, he was born around the time of the king Josiah, okay? Now, Josiah was a, what kind of king? Good king. Yeah, he was a good king, and he did what was right. Now, it's interesting, his father was murdered by a couple of conspirators, uh, and he was actually a bad king. And so perhaps that was also a motivation to be a good king, because he's like, this didn't end well for him. I'm going to try the other route. So he was good. So let's go to Second Chronicles. So I'm going to, I've listed the verses here so you guys can follow along and try to grab a Bible if you can, or you can just listen to me read, but it's always a danger. I could miss something. Uh, so Second Chronicles 34, verse 3, and we'll read it here. For in the eighth year of his reign, this is talking about Josiah, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. So this is kind of an interesting progression. Josiah starts out, he starts to seek God, but then that sort of takes a, a, a little bit of a, a twist. As he gets older, he starts to say, well, I'm going to start clearing out all the idolatry in the land. So he starts to develop, and there's this idea that as we grow in our faith, you know, we start to grow too. We don't come out of the, like, like a, Patrick saying, we come out as a butterfly or maybe an ugly moth, but we are flying, but we are still moving along and we develop a little bit as you grow. So Josiah is developing. Um, and the idea here is that it's a really positive time. And this is the, the period where Daniel's born. He's born in this time of revival, this time of growth. If you go down to verse 14 of chapter 34, now when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the what? The law and of the Lord given by Moses. And so when they found this book of the law, there was this major event where they started to read it and they repented and they sackcloth ashes deeply concerned because they were reading probably Deuteronomy. And if you've ever read Deuteronomy 28, you would be understanding why they're ripping their clothes off and crying. So it's, it's a very disturbing chapter, uh, and especially if it's applied towards you. So there they seek out this prophet and they get a reassurance that it's not going to happen to you guys because of the way you responded to these words. So God says, look, you're going to be okay. I'm going to, I'm going to hold back this, this judgment and you guys are going to be spared because of how you responded. And this is great. So in verse 18, verse 18, Josiah, his response, okay. Then Shaphan, the scribe told the king saying, Hilkiah has found me a book and Shaphan read it before the king. So the king reads it again. He, he repents. And the result of this is this amazing statement about how the Passover that was done in the time of the uh, King Josiah was more meaningful than it had ever been done in any king of Israel. In fact, it says that the Passover had never been kept in such a way when Josiah kept the Passover until the time of which prophet? Does anyone know? Samuel. So it's kind of an interesting thing. This is it's kind of hinting at the idea that 
Josiah's reforms, his things that he did are so deep that they undo almost the idea that Israel sinned to make a king. Okay, so that was a big apostasy when Israel said, we don't want God to be our king anymore. We want to have a man king. Okay, we like everybody else. So when Israel did that, they stepped one step away from God's plan. Okay, and Josiah, his Passover is so powerful that it goes back to this idea of the pre-king days when Israel was better than when they had the king. Okay, that's the kind of environment that Daniel's living in. A really positive thing. Now, we're going to learn more about this later. Daniel and his three friends' names are all named after God, and they have theophonic names, so they, they're, they're pro-God and saying something that God's doing in their name. Okay, so it's evident probably that Daniel had godly parents because of the way he was named, okay? So when you go to the next thing, Josiah tragically dies because he gets involved with uh, Pharaoh in a battle that was taking place in Megiddo, okay? And this was involving, Pharaoh was siding with some of the remnants of Assyria, and I just want to bring up to you guys, if you ever want to get into the history and get into the real nuts and bolts of it, there's this podcast called Fall of Civilizations. Has anyone read, listened to that, by the way? Okay, Fall of Civilizations. Check out the Assyrian Empire of Iron. Okay, that one is three-hour rabbit hole, but it is amazing uh, what they go through. And, and the, the last king of Assyria really is the one that we, when we think of the Assyrians, you think of these big... Uh, reliefs where you have these lions with wings and stuff on this wall. Uh, that was Assurbanipal, and he made these last. It was the idea in the kings of Assyria to kill lions as a sort of sign of their manliness and ability to rule. And so they would do that. Now, the pharaoh had, was going with Assyria because they were just the last real resistance for the Neo-Babylonian new king on the block that was on the rise. And Josiah was pro-Babylon, so he was going to go help the Babylonians. Pharaoh was like, stay out of this. Don't get involved. You'll be fine. And Josiah was like, I'm going to be involved. And he got killed. So when he dies, Josiah's son, Jehoaz, is put on the throne. Now, uh, when Pharaoh is able to settle things in his first battle with the Babylonians, and he comes back, second kings, we're going to go to now things start to turn dark for Israel. 2 Kings chapter 23 and verse 34. So then Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in place of his father, Josiah, and changed the name to Jehoiakim. And Pharaoh took Jehoaz and went to Egypt, and he died there. So the first king of uh, Israel after Josiah, Jehoaz was three-month reign, not very long. He was deposed by Pharaoh Necho. Pharaoh takes another son of Josiah, renames him, which is important. Think about this. Hold this in your mind for later. He gets renamed, and for all it appears, Jehoiakim is really okay with it. He's really okay with his Egypt being their master, and he doesn't really go against it, because if you see the next few verses, Jehoiakim comes up with the money, the tax that's being required, and he sort of follows the rules. In other words, he is not resisting this new master that is not God's appointed 
person over him. He is okay with whatever's happening. Another thing about Jehoiakim is he's not really pro-prophet of God. Okay, if you go to Jeremiah chapter 36, verses 22 to 24, we're going to see a good character image about how Jeremiah was viewed by the king Jehoiakim. All right, so we're going to Jeremiah chapter 36, verses 22 to 24. So Jeremiah has been prophesying here, and a scroll is given to be read for the king. And <clears throat> this was in the winter, I guess. In verse 22, it says, Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning on the hearth before him. And it happened when Jehoiada read three or four columns that the king cut it with the scribe's knife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth. So, so it's getting an interesting picture of Jehoiakim here. He's, he hears a little bit of Je, uh, Jeremiah's prophecy and he says, well, cut that part out. And then he burns it. Okay. And then he continues and uh, until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid, nor did they tear their garments, the king, nor any of his servants who heard all these words. So you see, uh, Jehoiakim is, is kind of the opposite character of his dad, Josiah. Okay, when the prophet is reading a scroll of judgment about to happen, what you should do, his response is, let's just burn the thing. Um, we, we don't really, and then they just sort of like, okay, on with the regular day's business. So Jehoiakim is not... A character that is listening to God's prophets. He's okay with the name change. He's okay with this new master. He doesn't resist in any way. And he does not want to go with what God's telling him to do. He sort of, if you go back to Jeremiah 7, he has this interesting thing because <clears throat> Jehoiakim's name still has this interesting God name in it. It's Jehovah will act or something like that. And so there's this interesting idea that Jehoiakim is retaining some level of God in his life. He's sort of gotten to where God is part of his repertoire, but it's not all of it. You know, there's other things he's got in there, too. He's got Egypt, Egypt's culture, Egypt's idols. That's OK. But God's part of it, but he's not my soul master. OK. And Jeremiah's little fringe, little extreme. And but but he still holds on to the God in the good parts, like in verse uh, chapter of seven of Jeremiah, verse four. So there's this there's this saying that's going around and Jeremiah in his sermon says, do not trust to these lying words. This little this little phrase that gets floated around Jerusalem, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. So Jeremiah is like, listen, you guys can say the temple of the Lord. God's house. This is God's people all day long. It's not going to do any good. The judgment is coming. Okay. And so as you can imagine, Jehoiakim really didn't like that. It wasn't really a pleasant thing to him. So he would burn these kind of statements. Now, if you go back to second Chronicles chapter 36, we see what happens ultimately. And Daniel is going to come into this in a second here. So Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 15 to 16. All right. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to him, to them, 
by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they what? Mocked the messengers of God. And what did they do to his words? Despised his words. And what did they do to his prophets? Scoffed, mocked them, made fun of them. Until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. So there came a point where God had to act and do something about it. So we have these two halves, really. So Daniel's earliest years are in this really high point in Israel, all the way to the point where the Josiah king had undone the apostasy even of becoming a king. Okay, even of choosing a king, that idea had been undone in Israel. Then he goes to this other, he's under this other kings, Jehoaz and Jehoiakim, who were totally against God's prophets to the point of just burning their books, okay? They're burning them. And, and then Jerusalem is going to fall. So he's, he's seeing things unraveling, okay? And then that's where we're going to pick up in Daniel chapter 1. So go to Daniel 1. And this is where our first uh, start is, the defeat. Okay, so we're going to look at Daniel 1, verses 1 to 2. Okay. All right. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with the sum of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. All right. So the first thing, right in the, right in the first verse, we see a theme of Daniel coming out. All right. Who gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar? Who did? The Lord. Very interesting. Right at the beginning. Yes, this is a calamity. Israel has fallen. But the person behind it, the person in control the whole time is the Lord. Now, from a secular perspective, this is just nonsense. You would say that your God's kingdom has fallen. You're thinking God's not very powerful. Something's going wrong. But that's not what Daniel sees. Daniel sees things in God's perspective here. And he's saying that God gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. This is, again, the theme. God is in control in history. He is orchestrating the major nations, movements, and to the point where they will come to his will eventually, okay? Now, again, another theme, what was another theme? We had the judgment, right? So God is judging who? Who is he judging? Israel, because of their sins. So we're seeing a couple themes here coming out right in the first verses. God is judging them. Now, in Daniel 1-2, what is taken to the temple of Nebuchadnezzar? What's taken over there? The articles, right? The articles of the temple. Now, what is unique about the nation of Israel in terms of what they worship? Do they have, a, what do they not have? Idols. So the only thing they could take to Babylon was what? The, the, the different articles of the first. So, so the way that Babylonians would so you triumphed over a nation is you'd bring the God of that nation. You'd parade him through this gate 
This is a really amazing gate. It's called the Ishtar Gate. And the Ishtar Gate has three different creatures on it, a dragon, a bull, and a lion, okay? And it was dedicated to one of the gods of Babylon. And so you'd parade these idols through and you'd say, look, our God killed these gods. We knocked out these gods. Or they may not, we've subjugated them. And it was, it was the idea that the things that happened on earth are a reflection of what's happening in the spiritual realm. Okay, so it's not exactly something we don't think either. We think something along those lines. But what they're saying is that the gods battled while we were battling and our gods beat their gods. So we're going to parade them through the land. Okay, now there's this interesting thing that comes up right away is this idea of Daniel in the critic's den. Okay, so right away, people have said, well, this is not an accurate book because we see the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, Daniel 1.1. Because if you go to Jeremiah 25, verse 1, you're going to see something different. <clears throat> Jeremiah 25, verse 1 says the fourth year. So how do we reconcile that? Well, what's interesting about this is this is an example of something that I think is really important. That the, the information that was available in the 1800s when a lot of these critics were coming about you realize that a lot of the critics are a result of the French Reformation, the French Revolution, not the Reformation, but the French Revolution and the ideas of a, of a sort of a modern th way of thinking were applied into theology, okay? And so at the time, we just had Greek sources and then the Bible. So we didn't know about this thing called the Ascension Year, okay, the Ascension Year. For instance, when the Queen died in England, Charles became king, but he wasn't crowned until later, right? It's the same idea. The king in Babylon was not crowned until the new year. And he would have to go through that gate, the Ishtar gate. And then he would go into the temple and the, the priest would do this interesting thing where they would slap the king until he started crying. He would kneel down in front of them and then he would start slapping him until he started weeping. And so it's the idea that he had to show some sort of visible sign of humility to the God that was in charge. And uh, that gives you kind of an idea of how much power the priests had over the, the, that, that area. But in Babylon, as a result, Daniel would be using this accession year. Now, we found out about this recently with the discovery of a lot of the cuneiform and some of these scrolls. And all this came to light. So this is an example of how in Jerusalem, they didn't have the same sort of reckoning. They had a, a, a more of a one, two, three, four. And so Jeremiah would have used this form. And then Daniel being in the Babylonian side would have seen this other way of counting. Um, and so it's easy to reconcile now. So there's a lot of things that still are out there. We don't understand why this is the way it is in the Bible. It doesn't seem to fit with the evidence we have now. You have to recognize there's a lot that we have not found. We have to continually dig, excavate. Lots of stuff has been destroyed, and we just may never find out this side of heaven. But again, don't let something that appears to conflict get you. There's lots of examples of things working out as more evidence comes along. So Daniel comes to Babylon in verses 3 to 5 some things start to happen right away. He starts to get training. 
And he had to learn four languages, probably Akkadian, Chaldean, Imperial, Aramaic, and Sumerian. Now, a lot of these would be very similar to the language that he's already familiar with, Hebrew. So they're, they have a similar roots. So it's like Spanish, French, and English. But the, um, they def definitely was a challenge, okay? So he was, he was learning, and, and this thing comes to light here in verse 3. It says, Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king descendants and some of the nobles. Now, this idea of the eunuchs, I had always thought that Daniel was being made a eunuch here. Now, it's possible after looking at this that it's not the case. And I want to show you why that is. Now, it's not saying that he wasn't. It's just possible that he was just brought to Babylon as a noble. So if you go to Genesis 39, the word there for master of the eunuchs is Rabsaris. In Genesis 39, verse 1, we see another Rabsaris. Interestingly, this story is also parallels with Daniel's story. So Genesis 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer, a captain of the guard, an Egyptian, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Now this word... Rapsaris is right there referring to Potiphar. So we know Potiphar wasn't a eunuch. That whole story about Joseph's uh, in, you know, interaction with Potiphar's wife would sort of be meaningless if he was a eunuch. But it, it is a, uh, definitely the case that Potiphar was not a eunuch. Now, so if you go back to Daniel then, it's possible that, and there's other examples we could go through, that Daniel was just one of the masters of is basically master of the guard master of the officials he could have been that now it's not saying that maybe they did do that to them but another reason why we think that could be not the case is verse four so young men daniel one again daniel one verse four young men in whom there was no what now that phrase no blemish is referring to is a is a phrase that's used in reference to the priests who had to be completely like physically without defect to be able to serve in the temple. Uh, it's also spoken of Absalom and the beloved in Song of Solomon. So these are description. This description is used of people that have no physical defect. And so again, there's two, two lines of evidence there, but it's not something to be uh, dogmatic about. I think it's just interesting. So if you continue on down, we go to the next section. All right. Now, the resistance. So this is the third section of the Daniel 1. We start in verse, let's see. We're going to look at verse 5. And the king appointed to them a daily provision of the king's food and of the wine which he drank in three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now, from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up, I always could get the Babylonian names easier for the three 
and then Daniel would be the, the Hebrew name would be easier for Daniel. So I would sort of have to learn it backwards in a way. But um, these names, what's really interesting about them, and this is what Stefanovich brings out, is that no one agrees on what the Babylonian names translation referred to. They know that it means a god of Babylon, but there's no exact easy translation of these names to an English equivalent. There's something that is corrupted about each of them. Even Nebuchadnezzar's name has a corruption. Like it's supposed to be honoring the God of Babylon, but there's something about it that's off. And if you look at the other, like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Nebuchadnezzar's name is Nebuchadnezzar. It's a slight variation. And so there's this idea here that, remember, who's writing this book? Daniel's writing it. So when he's writing this book, he's putting into this that he is resisting this new name. Now, remember, we're contrasting with Jehoiakim, who's the other character of Israel in the story, who just accepted the name given him, accepted the culture that was given, resisted the prophet of God. Here we see a contrast. Daniel has gotten a name, and then he's corrupting it, mocking the gods that they're supposed to be honoring. Okay? And it's, it's something that probably until Jesus comes, we will not know the full meanings of what these words are. For instance, Daniel's name, Belteshazzar, probably should be Belshazzar. That's the best guess right now. So, something to think about there. Now, verse 8, the second line of resistance. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, what is interesting about this, we see something similar to what happened with Josiah. He resolved in his heart to, to not defile himself. Now, he is resisting what has been appointed to him from who? Verse 5. What, who, who gave him that food? The king. He is resisting the king and the king's servant who was giving the job of making sure they got that food. He is resisting that idea, okay? And he is saying that no to that. Now, there's a lot of reasons why he could be saying no. Number one, what is one reason off the top? Idolatry. So that the, the meat was sacrificed to Marduk or some god of Babylon and then brought into the Israelites. And so by eating it, they're honoring this god. Okay, what's another one? Unclean. And in these books here, they talk about some things they've dug up somewhere. So, you know, the, the nice thing about the Babylonians, they use clay. And so when Assyria burned down, when the Babylonians destroyed it, it baked that clay so well. So now we can, when we dig it up, we can find what they wrote. Like, whereas our modern, you know, sophisticated books would disintegrate in a few weeks. Uh, so sometimes the old ways can work better. But, uh, the, uh, the Assyrian method of uh, keeping records has worked out when you dig things in the past. We've been able to see this. But we know that the soldiers had a diet of horse and pig, okay? It was a horse and pig diet on their way to fight these different uh, battles. So we know that that was definitely on the menu, both of which were not allowed for Israel. Um, Okay, that's another one. What, anything else? Any other ideas? Why would Daniel not want to take part of this food? What? 
didn't want to be assimilated. Yeah, I think there's something there. Like, if you look at in the Bible, often when there's a covenant being made, I wish Joe was here, the covenant. So uh, there, when a covenant is being made, the persons after it's made eat. That's kind of a symbol of what you do after a covenant. So it's a way of showing good faith between the two that they're, um, they're agreeing to the terms. Um, another thing here is that the king is taking the responsibility of giving them the food. So as a result, by when we think of food, we often don't think of it this dramatically. But really, what is food? Food is what for us? Life. Okay. So, yeah, you have to sort of expand. Like if we restrict ourselves from food, we will all die. So we are dependent on all of the food that we get from Publix or Walmart or whatever it is um, to, to live. Okay. And so Daniel, by saying he was not going to take the king's food, is saying that his source of wisdom, his life is coming from where? It's coming from God. He is resisting in that sense. Now, what Daniel's doing here, he, he made this decision in verse 12. Notice what he says that he wants. So he's, he, he gives this, uh, it, was, it, it was three levels. So the king, then the chief of the eunuchs, and then verse 11, it says the steward whom the chief of the units had set. So there's three levels down. So Daniel's negotiating here. Please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Now, this word vegetables here goes back to Genesis 1 verse 29. And I just want to read that really quickly. Genesis 1 29. It's alluding back to this verse. So Genesis 1, 29, God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth and every tree, which fruit yields seed to you. It shall be for food. So Daniel's hearkening back to a, a creation here. And the idea being that he's saying God who created order out of chaos, took this, this uh, watery chaos world and made it what we know today. He can take my chaos when I just depend on him and reorder it. Okay. That's what he's doing. He's, he's hearkening back to that. And when we look at that, then the, there's this idea here that when the, the steward, one thing that it's not in the text, but possibly what happened is the steward's like, okay, I'll give you the 10 day test. And Daniel's like, and you can have the food. Now that would ensure the silence, you know? So if you're getting three Michelin star restaurant food every day for no cost. I mean, you're not going to say anything. So I, I think that the, Daniel probably, you know, he made a good deal. And so he it made it work and he made a 10 day thing. Now God created the world in what? Seven days. So Daniel's like, I'm going to, God did seven. I'm going to just give him three extra days. And so they do this thing. Now, the result of this is a miraculous thing. I think that you, know, you can, you can, there's some things I've, I've read about different things that have happened in a 10 day period. And I don't want to discount that, but I think that there's definitely something here that's special that happened to see this huge contrast. Okay. There's a major contrast that happens. And we know that Daniel didn't just eat uh, vegetables his whole life. Um, if you go to Daniel 10 verse three, 10 verse 3, it says, I ate no pleasant food. 
No meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till the three whole weeks were fulfilled. So later Daniel did start eating meat again. So it wasn't the idea that Daniel's vegetarian forever, okay? Um, but when he had more control, when you know, he became top uh, magician, then he could order how his meat was prepared and which meat he got and all that kind of stuff. So he was more uh, in control then. But at this point, he's just eating vegetables. So then God works a miracle. They, they are able to uh, see this uh, complete contrast. Like if you go look at verse um, 15, it says, At the end of the ten days, their features appeared better, fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. And so the, the result is that the judgment, again, this theme of judgment coming in, that the judgment is in the favor of who? The men of God, okay? It's in the favor of God's servants. So this theme, again, of judgment's going to be for us. It's not going to be against us. So God's people get preserved through the judgment, this idea. Okay, so now let's go to the end. This last section of the thing, we'll wrap this up here. So Daniel... 1 17 to 21 this is the triumph section okay as for these four young men god gave them knowledge and skill in all literature wisdom and daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams now at the end of the days when okay i'm going to pause there so verse 17 god gives what who gives the wisdom god gives it now this goes against a major idea in modern thinking okay that when we when we study nature when we study uh philosophy whatever all of our knowledge can just come from right in here right and maybe other person's brains but we don't have to depend on an external supernatural thing daniel is saying ultimately wisdom comes from where he's going against what we in our world think of as kind of Almost, we sort of have to remind ourselves that wisdom is God-given, okay? Now, at the end of the days, verse 18, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before the Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them. This is, reminds me of, in England, the way that the uh, exams are given is at the end, and then the, all the, the professors will sit around and they'll quiz you. This is for like PhD stuff. And, and so then they'll just grill you for like two, four hours. You know, you just question after question and you'll live or die based on that question. Now, not literally now, but uh, back then, I'm sure if you didn't study, you could have a bad fate um, could, considering what Nebuchadnezzar does later. So the king interviewed them and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Now, which kind of names are those? Are those the Hebrew names or the Babylonian? Hebrew names. So notice how Daniel is again showing that when we're victorious, which names are we giving? We're giving God-given names. God is the one that's giving us the victory. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Now, verse 20, And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king had examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Now, this is incredible here. What we see is that in three years' time, Daniel not only masters everything ten times better than all his fellow students, but he's ten times better than the professionals, the people that have been doing it all their lives. 
What, what Daniel is, is an example, not of like a smart person. Daniel's a brilliant person. Okay. He's like, if God had Einstein on his side, you know, got an Einstein that was completely committed to him. That's the level of brilliance. Like when you survey the smart people of the world, like Stephen Hawking or some of these brilliant people recently, like not many of them are on God's side. I would say when I, what I mean by that is like they're hunt like Daniel level. <laughs> you know, we don't see that often, but this is an example of someone who was so brilliant that he outpaced everyone in the entire Babylonian empire. And that, that was a pretty good sample because Babylon had just wiped everybody off the map that was against them. So this is a, at the time, the top person and by a wide margin, which wasn't even close. It's like, you know, people talk about Michael Jordan, and LeBron James, right? Who's the best, you know, and, and it's starting to get closer. Uh, for those of you who are about uh, basketball people, uh, but it is still by it depends on who you are t talking to some people like I'm a Michael Jordan camp, just so you know, but I, I, I'm a, I think that it's it's a Daniel was like so much better that it was just no there was no comparison. All right. So enough of that. I, I think that um, the next thing we want to think about here is this reversal. So the last verse, this is the most, one of the most powerful verses to me in this whole chapter. Thus Daniel, verse 21, continued until the first year of who? King Cyrus. This is unbelievable. What this is saying is that Daniel, little Daniel, is going to go on beyond the kingdom that took us captive. He goes on until the reign of the first Medo-Persian. So in this first chapter, what we're seeing here is that this defeat all the way in to where Daniel exists, to where the exiles, the, everyone goes back home. Now, Daniel doesn't get to go back home. He dies, I think, before that opportunity. But he is, it's, it's a symbol, though. It's just giving you like a shadow. Like everything in this world's a shadow. Like when you see the Atlas moth, that big giant moth, it's like, wow, that's amazing. that There's a huge moth flying around that's able to exist like that. It's a shadow of like in heaven, we'll probably see moths way bigger. It's a little hint. And so this has given us a hint at the ultimate reversal of how Daniel, things looked terrible. Everything was going bad. Exile. The king was in the wrong place. He was accepting everything. Whereas Daniel's like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to re resist it. And the, this ends okay because Daniel trust in God through this whole period. Daniel gives us a really interesting example of what Jesus says to be in, but not of. Okay. So Jesus said, I pray that they're not taken out of the world, but that they stay in the world. But then when they're in, they're not of the world that I want them to be a light, but I don't want them to be of the world. I was having an interesting conversation with uh, Dale yesterday about this idea about this miners who were, had this, his, uh, they, they, they would get paid based on the amount of ore they would get to the surface. And so they, they would get gold, put it aside, and then they'd make this huge extended section, like a five foot wide section. They would mine, put that into the uh, conveyor, get it up to the surface, and then they'd throw some gold in there. And the, uh, as a result, they'd get more money, you know, that, that, and so 
the people were saw nothing wrong with it, but as Dale was pointing out, like, that was stealing because they were they were getting a little bit extra than they, what they should be if they had mined under normal practices. And I think that when we're in this world, we all live in secular environments. Most of us don't work in church environments. We have opportunities like this in our lives where we can see what we can do and be ethical and stay within God's guidelines. We can be like a, a light in those situations where we resist the secular world that says, oh, it's okay. But then at the same time, Daniel shows us how we should be loving and kind and serving those around us. Daniel served his king, Nebuchadnezzar, the one who's his captor. He really cared about him. And that is an interesting line to try to do. Now, ultimately, Jesus is the best example of how you can love the sinner, hate the sin kind of thing. But Daniel is a great second option. He gives us another example of how that can be done. So in conclusion, we have a call. Uh, I want to think about four calls here. So a call to be like Daniel which is, he was like Jesus. So ultimately, that's what that is. A call to be like Jesus, which is in the world, but not of the world. We have certain things that we're not going to let go. We're not going to say, okay, I'm just going to accept it like Jehoiakim. We're going to say, no, I'm not going to do that. That's one line I won't cross. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to be kind and, and a servant at the same time. There's a lot of like, obnoxious people that try to use Christianity, religion, as a way to just be annoying. But that's not what God's wanting us to do. He doesn't want us just to be an annoying, obnoxious pain in the, you know. Okay, I'll let you fill in the blanks. Call to trust in God. That's another one. So Daniel had every reason to not trust in God. Okay. He could have said, uh, you know, we're being carted off to a foreign land. This doesn't seem very good. And I'm going to give everything up. We give up religion for far less things. We don't have enough people showing up to church. Oh, I'm going to give it up. I mean, we have more than Daniel. Daniel had three. So we, we, we have to re remind ourselves things are not as bad as they could be. I think it's often um, the case when you go through a hurricane that you're like, wow, that wasn't that bad. I mean, most news media hurricane coverage makes you think like the world is ending. Um, but, you know, once in a while it will, you know, if it hits directly. But that's the thing is that we often are getting it so easy right now. Okay. Now, I'm not saying it's always going to be that way, but we have to remind ourselves that it could get a lot worse. We have to trust in God, though, whatever it is. The third one, called to serve our fellow man. Daniel was a servant in the midst of his captors. He you know, the way he addresses, like the way he talks to the steward, he's negotiating. Test. Let me do something that's reasonable for you. I don't want you to lose your head while we try to deal with our little deal here. Let me try to do something that we can both work out. We'll give you the food maybe as a deal, as a part of a sweeten this deal. But the, uh, he, he is working with him. And then the way he serves the king, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Daniel's an example of how we should be servants in the midst of a, a secular world. We're kind of like Daniel. We're kind of an exile. Like we're not, and what I mean by that, this isn't our true home. So when we think about our true home, 
we have to say, okay, well, how can I help people in this exile period? All right, and then the last one is a call to seek wisdom from God. Now, this is something that goes against the secular world. We're, like I said, we're in exile right now. So we, we're not going to be normal if you go and, like Tony Blair said, I pray before I make a decision. That was mocked. It was a bad idea. Why would you do that? Why would you ask God for wisdom? And I'm not saying I like Tony Blair, by the way. I'm just saying that he said something that was considered a, a ridiculous statement in the modern secular world that you would pray before you make a decision. How dare you? You should go and consult your, your scientists. I'm not saying don't do that. But I'm just saying that people in our world see the idea that we need to go outside of ourselves as something bad. And that's what we got to say. No, we actually do believe in that. Now, I'm not, you can be clever how you say that. You don't have to be, be, you can, like Jesus said, be a wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. So you have to be thoughtful in all these things. But I think that Daniel gives us an example here. Called to be like Daniel, called to trust in God, called to serve our fellow man, called to seek wisdom from God. So if that, is that something you guys want to answer those calls? You want to raise your hand? Okay. All right, let's have a prayer and we'll close this. Thank you, Father, for this time together in this uh, study of Daniel. Thank you for his example. We just pray that you would please give us your spirit. Lord, we, we know that Daniel was a very smart, uh, brilliant man. And we are not anywhere close to that here. But we know that you have wisdom from heaven and that we need it. We just pray, Lord, that you would give us courage to be like Daniel and the exiles that we live in today. The situations that seem to be deteriorate, deteriorating. We just pray that you'd help us to have faith. We pray, Lord, that you'd remind us to know that you will change these circumstances and make them right one day. We pray that that day would come soon. We pray that you'd help us all to be there when that day comes and be on the right side of that judgment. We pray, Father, for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.